Welcome to Langstaff Online. My name is Michael Da Silva, and I am your host for Episode 3. We are just coming off of our Christian Fellowship Weekend, which was hosted by three local churches in Toronto, Lansing, Unionville, and Langstaff. It was wonderful to see such a diverse crowd of believers, including so many younger ones that joined us. We were also very happy to have our speaker from Bridge of Weir, Scotland, Mr. Stephen Grant. Stephen has been serving the Lord for over 20 years and is a lawyer by trade. The subject of the weekend was the love commands of Christ. And on this podcast episode, we are going to listen to his first session entitled Loving God. We trust you will find it very challenging and yet very applicable in your life as a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you. It's good to be here, and we do trust that we're going to experience uh, the Lord's blessing and presence uh, when we turn to his words. So let's just begin in prayer, and let's just open in prayer. Our Father, we come before thee in the name of the Lord Jesus. We give thanks for being able to gather together to hear thy voice, to read thy word. We pray, our Father, as we do this, that we might sense thy presence. We thank thee, our God, that we are able to open thy word with confidence, to look into it, to study it, and to submit our will to thy word. And we pray that that might be the case today. We ask thee, our Father, that thy word would have its effect, that it would be like seed which falls upon good ground. And our Father, we pray that there may be fruit following this day. We thank thee, our God, for all the arrangements that we've heard about. We just pray it would all go smoothly and we'd all facilitate this experience of uh, spending a day together and fixing our hearts upon thyself and upon thy son and we pray that that in itself would be a blessing for all of us so father bless us we ask of thee be with us we pray as we would commend the day to thee and ask for thy blessing in the name of the lord jesus amen so i'm going to ask you to turn to matthew's gospel in chapter 22 please I am going to be a grandfather. It's maybe the most exciting thing, I think, in my life at the moment. Um, But that's not until February. I need to wait to February, apparently. So Matthew chapter 22, let's read, please, and verse number 34. (coughs) Matthew chapter 22 and verse 34. But when the Pharisees had heard that he had put the Sadducees to silence, they were gathered together. Then one of them, which was a lawyer, asked him a question, tempting him and saying, Master, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, What think ye of Christ, whose son is he? Now back into the book of Deuteronomy, please. And we'll read the scripture that the Lord was referring to in Deuteronomy chapter 6. (coughs) 
So Deuteronomy in chapter 6, please, and verse number 3. Hear therefore, O Israel, and observe to do it, that it may be well with thee, and that ye may increase mightily, as the Lord God of thy fathers hath promised thee in the land that floweth with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy might. And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart. And thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children, and shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, and when thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. And thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thine hand, and they shall be as frontlets between thine eyes. And thou shalt write them upon the posts of thy house and on thy gates, and it shall be when the Lord thy God shall have brought thee into the land which he sware unto thy fathers, to Abram, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give thee great and goodly cities which thou buildest not, and houses full of all good things which thou fillest not, and wells digged which thou digst not, vineyards and olive trees which thou plantest not, when thou shalt have eaten and be full, then beware lest thou forget the Lord, which brought thee forth out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. Thou shalt fear the Lord thy God and serve him, and shalt swear by his name ye shall not go after other gods, of the gods of the people which are round about you. For the Lord thy God is a jealous God among you, lest the anger of the Lord thy God be kindled against thee and destroy thee from off the face of the earth. Now that's our text, and we'll no doubt refer to other scriptures as we go on through this session. We're going to divide um, the session, which really runs until about 10 past 12. We're going to divide it into two, um, I think, and have a hymn at some point, so you won't need to sit for the whole period of time. When you come back to Matthew chapter 22, let me just fill in a bit of context in relation to this uh, statement by the Lord Jesus when he was speaking about the greatest commandment, which was the greatest commandment. And when you come to Matthew chapter 22 as a section, there is a central statement within the section upon which the whole section revolves. And the central statement is, render therefore unto Caesar the things which are Caesar's and unto God the things which are God's. And that is the central statement in this section, that God requires that which it is our duty to render to him. He requires it of us. It is our duty. It ought to be a priority for us. And the context is that when you come to Matthew 22, this takes place during the last week before the cross, probably on the Wednesday, and the Lord Jesus, he has, he's riding into Jerusalem and he's being hailed as the Messiah. And he's cleansed the temple, and he has uh, driven out the money changers and the money lenders and so forth. And the religious people have reacted because he's upset everything. And he has questioned them and their authority, and they in turn question him and his authority. And so he answers that opposition by a trilogy of parables. So he, he says three parables. 
And each of these parables is inherently a condemnation of the present religious status quo in Jerusalem at that time. And so in his parabolic teaching, then it dawns upon these religious leaders that they are actually in the parables and are the subject of the parables. The consequence of this is that they react badly to that and they come back, having heard three parables, they come back with three questions. And the, the chapter is structured, the section is structured around these three parables and then three questions. So there is a, there is a conflict of authority. There's a conflict here between the religious authorities of the day and the Lord Jesus and his radical teaching. And it was radical. He had been teaching parabolically since the end of chapter 12. At the end of chapter 12, the nation of Israel, in its leadership, rejects the Lord Jesus finally. And when you come into chapter 13, the symbolism is that he leaves the house, which symbolizes him ministering to the nation of Israel, and he goes out onto the seashore, which means that he's now going on to the Gentiles. There's been a shift. And chapter 13 is the key shift in the, cha in the book. And he's now going to speak parabolically at the end of chapter 12 and verse 12 and 13. He says this, Whosoever hath to him shall be given, and he shall have more abundance. But whosoever hath not from him shall be taken away, even that he hath. Therefore, speak I to them in parables. Because they seeing see not, and hearing they hear not, neither do they understand. So now he speaks in parables. The three questions that they ask of the Lord Jesus after they receive the three parables are these. They ask a question about taxation. It's always a thorny subject. Taxation. And it is the Herodians who are political who ask the question. So they say, is it lawful to give tribute unto Caesar or not? That's followed by a second question on the resurrection, and that's asked by the Sadducees. So each of these political and religious leaders get a shot at asking a question. The Herodians, taxation. The Sadducees, resurrection. If a man die having no children, his brother shall marry his wife, and you get this convoluted scenario all about resurrection. And the Lord answers that. And then there is a question about the law. And it's the Pharisees that ask the question about the law. And it's that question that we've broken into. So there's the context in which the question is asked and the answer is given. It's a question about law, and it's given in that context. Master, which is the greatest commandment in the law? It's the Pharisees. Now, the Lord Jesus answers them from their law. So these Pharisees were experts in law-keeping and in building many other laws of their own making on top of that which came from God, and they were experts in the construct of law and a legal system. So the Lord Jesus goes to what was of God in Deuteronomy chapter 6 that we've read together, and he quotes from it. Now, it's interesting that this would be extremely familiar to these Pharisees. 
in fact, the most familiar part of Old Testament Scriptures. Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, and verse number 5. If you ever see a picture of an Orthodox Jew, then you would see on their arm and sometimes between their eyes, on their forehead, a little box, and it's called the phylactery, and inside the little box are these Scriptures. So this was something that was part and parcel of their daily life. He's quoting what they recited at least twice a day. So an Orthodox Jew would recite this twice a day, and he quotes it right back at them. They had a complete misunderstanding as to its meaning, but they were very familiar with the words. So he's going to educate them and challenge them as to the meaning of what they were very familiar with, which, by the way, when it comes to Bible teaching, is always a profitable pursuit. Because very often we become familiar with the words, but we don't understand the teaching of them. So this is not a new thing. The Pharisees were like that. One writer said this, that the word in Deuteronomy 6, 5, thou shalt love in Hebrew, that verb refers primarily to the love of will, the love of the mind, the love of action, rather than the love of feeling or emotion. It is the highest kind of love. Not the love that you feel, but the love of dedication, the love of commitment, the love that says, this is right, this is noble, no matter how I feel. And it's from this concept that you get the New Testament equivalent word of agape love. That's the context in what he says. So when you come into the New Testament and you think about the words that are used in the New Testament to speak about love, then there is a love word that is drawn out of that Hebrew concept of the love of the will, the love of the mind, the love of decision. It's different from the, the word filial, which is the love of affection or emotion. It's different from the word eros, which is the love to do with physical sense. So here is the Lord Jesus, and they've said, which is the most important commandment in all of the law? And he answers them. The most important commandment in all of the law is that you love the Lord your God with everything you have and everything you are. That's the most important commandment. In Mark's gospel, he adds a word that's not here, and it is the word strength. Your strength, your heart, your soul, your mind, your everything. You hold nothing back for self. It's all for Him. It's the greatest commandment in the whole of the law. Your heart, the very core of a person's identity, everything about life flows out from the heart. The issues all of life all come from the heart, the proverb says. And so from your heart, you have to love God. Your soul, you remember it said, the Lord Jesus said, my soul is exceeding sorrowful nigh unto death. Perhaps referring to the emotive part of the person. The mind. The word mind here replaces the word might in Deuteronomy 6. It's the same broad concept. This is intelligent love. This is a feeling love. This is a willing love. This is a serving love. 
And notice this, it doesn't say that you have to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind. That's not what it says. It says you have to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your whole soul and with your whole mind. Each word has the same emphasis right through the verse. So that it's not that one aspect of me is more important than the other. Equally, every aspect of me as a person should love God. This is the commandment. This is the answer. And when you examine this, what's he, sp- what's he speaking about? What is, what is the commandment calling for? It is calling to love God with absolutely everything. Well, of course, the question is, what does that mean? What does that look like? Well, if we want to know what it looks like, we look to the Lord Jesus, who's the only man on earth who has ever loved the Lord, his God, with everything he had. He is the only perfect man who perfectly pleased his Father here upon earth. So, we have a picture of that love in Christ. That's what it looks like. What actually is it? It means this for us. It means that our marital relationship, our parental relationship, our relationship as a child, our relationship with our property, with our resources, with our relationships within the community, within our workplace, everything should fall under the umbrella of this statement. You have to love the Lord, your God, with everything that you have. Wholehearted, life-encompassing allegiance and commitment to God. Number one, everywhere that you look in your life, He trumps everything. The word trumps a bit unfortunate, but anyway, He is superior to everything and everyone. Just in case the Old Testament people didn't get it, then in the law, there is a prescription when you go down Deuteronomy 6 as to where exactly that had to be in their life. And so, he's very, the, the law is very detailed as to where this love had to impact. For example, Deuteronomy 6, verse 6 down to verse number 9, stress this, that the application of that should impact relationship. It should be in the home. It should be in the workplace. It should be when you're walking down the road. He says everywhere, this should be a priority for you as a follower of God, as a child of God. In a New Testament context, as a follower of Christ, as a Christian. So, I've got to love God at home, at work, in my social life, in my relationships, how I handle my money, how I handle my property, the decisions I make, the motive I have in my heart, the things that I allow into my head, the things that I listen to, watch, engage in, all the words I speak. It's easier really to say where I haven't to love God, which is nowhere. It's all embracing. It's not that God wants a part of us. He wants all of us, all the time. Any diminution of that, any falling short of that is sin. It isn't just a second-grade Christianity. It's sin. This is the law. This is the greatest law. 
And this is where we probably sin the most. God doesn't have his place. Therefore, it's like a foundation of life. I'm not a builder, but I know this. We're doing a building work back home in our hall. I know this. You get the foundation wrong. And by the time you get up to the top, it's out by a mile. If it's out by an inch, when you get up there, it's out by two feet. When we get our relationship with God wrong, the further away we go from God in our life, then the further away we go from pleasing God. It just goes like that. So decisions I make in the workplace, decisions I make in the family up here, because at the core of my life, I am not loving God, these decisions will not be correct. And the impact will be bad. And very often, we, we deal with this up here without thinking about this down here. But this is the core reason. God does not have his place in our lives. Therefore, when things extend out from that, they're on the wrong trajectory. And so authentic love for God, what does this look like? It starts with affections and desires and thoughts and the will. It permeates out into the speaking, the behavior, the relationship behavior that we have. It influences how I spend my money, how I dress, drive, what entertainment I engage with, you name it, all calibrated by this mindset towards God that He is supreme, He is to be loved, He is to be glorified, He is number one call and everything, and He is supreme, He is sovereign, He is Lord. So He's in the throne. He is the one who sets the tone. He's the one that sets the agenda. And his expressed will that we possess in our Bible is our go-to resource to understand what that looks like in our lives and how that should be worked out. Love for God is sometimes not spoken about. Our desires, conforming these desires to that which will please God, our affections to love the things that God loves, our purpose to pursue the things that are of God, our feelings to subject them to the Word of God, our character to be, be refined by the Spirit of God. And the biggest battleground of all our thoughts to be calibrated and moderated by divine truth. And all of that is involved in loving God. The problem is just this, that we are sinners. That's the problem. And the problem is that when we bring ourselves hard up against the demands of God's law, the demand of God's law doesn't actually help us keep it, but just demonstrates the fact that we can't keep it. And that was, that was the extent of what the law could do. So the law shone a light into our very personhood, into the essence of what we are, which is this. We fall short of the glory of God, every one of us, all the time. And as believers in the Lord Jesus, that is true of us. We all sin, and we sin repetitively, and we sin persistently, and we sin deliberately, and we sin all the time. Every one of us. And this issue is at the very core of it all. We are not loving God as we should. The question is, how is this even possible then? Or is it even possible? 
Let I mention the fact that the Lord Jesus is the only one that has ever done this. And when we look to him, we can understand that he had no sin in him. He was perfect. He was holy. He was pure. He was devoted. And there was absolutely no deficiency in his relationship with God the Father. None whatsoever. Not even a shadow of it. And the truth of it is that we cannot be too expansive in our language when we speak about this because we're speaking about that which we've never seen on earth ourselves, but which we read of. We're speaking about that which is pure and holy and perfect. And that relationship had no shadow of darkness in it at all. He loved God. And he fulfilled the law. We fall short. Our love for God at best is a love which is reactive. It's not causeless. So that when you come to Scripture, listen to the words of the psalmist. Psalm 116. I love the Lord because. So immediately you have that word because it no longer is a causeless love. We love the Lord because. And the psalmist says, because he hath heard my voice and my supplications, because he hath inclined his ear unto me, therefore will I call upon him as long as I live. And so he goes on. Beautiful psalm. But he's expressing his reaction to the actions of God in his life. He's responding. I love the Lord because. When you come into the New Testament, you find that this is also the case. For example, 1 John 4, verse 9 through to verse 10 says this, In this was manifested the love of God toward us, because that God sent his only begotten Son into the world that we might live through him. There's the action of God. Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the whole world. So, again, you have this truth. 1 John 4, verse 19 continues it. We love Him because He first loved us. That's just about as good as we can get. So, our love for God is a reactive love. It is based on an appreciation of His love for us. He has acted towards us. We respond to that, and it's that response of love that we are called to manifest and demonstrate in our lives, which falls from an appreciation of His love. The more that we appreciate his love, the more we are able to be responsive to it. The greater appreciation and time spent educating ourselves, meditating upon, worshipping the love of God which has been shown to us, then the greater response there will be from our failed, flawed lives. And we will return. We will love him because he has first loved us. We are capable of doing this because in Romans 5, 5, it says this, 
that the love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So that within us as individuals, we as believers in the Lord Jesus have a capability, a capacity that someone who is not a Christian does not possess which is that by the Spirit of God, we can respond, we are able to respond to the love of God which has been shed abroad in our hearts. The Holy Spirit is able to educate us and draw us to a great appreciation of divine love and then provoke us to love God in the practical ways that we've been speaking about. It doesn't come out of vacuum. The poorer our appreciation of the love of God for us, then the poorer our response will be to it. So in practical terms, this is the greatest commandment. We cannot keep the law. We know that. That's why Christ had to come. That's why Calvary had to take place. That's why we needed a Savior, because we couldn't do it ourselves. We couldn't even keep the first commandment, never mind the rest of them. And so, but now we are saved. We have been regenerated. We've been born again. The Spirit of God indwells us, and we appreciate divine love, and we are able to respond to the commands of the New Testament, to love our God. It's not a natural thing. It's a spiritual thing. When you come to the New Testament as well, what's the alternative to loving God? It's idolatry. It's a direct alternative. You either do one of two things in life as a believer. You either worship God or you worship something else. But you are never, ever not worshiping. We are always worshiping. We were created to worship. And we replace God with other things. Just read Romans 1 to 3. And instead of worshiping the creator, they worship the creation of the creator and turn the creation into gods and worship them. It's part of the condemnation of these first few chapters of the book of Romans. It's the story of humanity. I mean, people would rather worship a tree than the God who made it and sustains it. People would rather worship stuff, things, creeds, whatever, than God. They worship anything other than God. Idolatry for a believer is when God doesn't have first place. So I thought, well, what does that mean? What does that look like? What does that look like in Canada and Scotland? Idolatry. I go to places in the world where idolatry looks like the kind of caricature of, except it's not funny. So that you'll go into houses and there are shrines, and maybe some of you have personal experience of this, and maybe some of you have a background of this, and there are religious gods that are represented in ornaments and shrines within a home. That may well be the case. And if that be the case, then it's a very identifiable form of idolatry. It's religious idolatry. So that there are gods other than the living God who are being served within the home. So, for example, when someone becomes a Christian, they face a very stark choice. 
to take these idols, which represent gods. The idols are not the gods. They represent the spirit beings that they are worshiping, and they have a choice to remove that from their life. It's a very, um, it's a very stark choice and decision. But when you come to the Western world, idolatry is a far more subtle and equally strong problem. It's a problem of the heart, always has been. Listen to Ezekiel. I know you all love to read Ezekiel. Listen to Ezekiel chapter 14 and verse 1 to 6. It says this. Now some of the elders of Israel came to me and sat before me, and the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, these men have set up their idols in their hearts and put before them that which causes them to stumble into iniquity. Should I let myself be inquired of at all by them? Therefore speak to them and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Every one of the house of Israel who sets up his idols in his heart and puts before him what causes him to stumble into iniquity, and then comes to the prophet, I, the Lord, will answer him who comes, according to the multitude of his idols, that I may seize the house of Israel by their heart, because they are all estranged from me by their idols. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord, the God, the Lord God, repent, turn away from your idols, and turn your faces away from all your abominations. Idolatry always has been an issue of the heart. Worship is a heart issue. Idolatry, therefore, is a heart issue. Who has your heart? There's a Bible class leader in the assembly that my wife went to in Perth in Scotland, and he would always ask you the question when you met him. He was from the north of Ireland, and he would say, how's your heart? He wasn't talking about coronary problems or anything like that. He was talking about your spiritual condition. He would always ask you, how's your heart? It's the key. How is the heart? Is it captivated by God or by other things? And that is the focal point of it. It's the biggest problem, could I suggest to you, of Christian idolatry tends to be as Tim Keller writes in Counterfeit Gods, it tends to be when we as Christians take things which are good and make them God things. So it is Christians rarely idolize evil, but often idolize good things and make them God things. So that God is not being worshipped. God is not primary. It's something else which may not often in itself be evil, but it certainly shouldn't be worshipped because then it becomes an idol. Okay, you say be specific. Okay, I will. Um, here is, and by the way, you should write, read that book by Tim Keller, Counterfeit Gods. It's excellent. And from his book, he says this. Here, he gives examples of Western idolatry. Now, remember, he's writing from New York. So someone says, I have power and influence over other people. I can't give it up. Power idolatry. Others, approval idolatry. I am loved and respected by other people. I can't do without it. 
comfort idolatry. Sorry about this. I have this kind of pleasure or quality of life and could not give it up. Control idolatry. I am able to get mastery over this area of my life, and I absolutely love the fact that I am in control of that in my own life. So we could go on, there's loads of them. Work idolatry, I'm highly productive and pleased to bits about it, and I'm getting a lot done. Materialism, religion, whatever, an individual. There's a whole lot there, relationship, etc. Then he looks at four categories closely, and I want to mention them to you to provoke you to think. It goes like this. This is how idolatry works amongst Christians. If you seek power, success, influence, whatever, your greatest nightmare is humiliation. People around you often feel used. And your problem emotion is often anger. You're an idolater. You are worshiping power. Okay, the other end of the spectrum, approval. Approval. Your greatest nightmare if you need affirmation, constant expressions of love, if you can't function without certain relationships, your greatest nightmare is rejection. People around you often feel smothered. Your problem, emotion, cowardice. You're a coward. Why? Because you worship approval. You can't think about not having it. Comfort. So the third one. If you seek comfort, i.e. privacy, no stress. Imagine that, no stress. Does sound quite good, doesn't it? Your greatest nightmare is stress. People around you feel neglected. And your problem emotion is boredom. Lastly, control. If you seek control, self-discipline, certainty standards, i.e., you give it a you say you're OCD and that makes it okay because it's got an acronym. It's okay, I'm OCD. No, it's not. Um your greatest nightmare is uncertainty. People around you feel condemned because they're a nightmare. They're, they live chaotic lives. And your problem emotion is worry. Worry. You're always worrying. Read the book. It's very challenging. You'll find yourself in our Western society in there somewhere because... Our issue is always one of worship. We may not be bowing the knee before some little statue in a house with incense sticks round about it and food offered to it. And we may, in all our superiority of our Western education and culture, look down our nose at that and say, who with a thinking mind would ever bow a knee before that? Not understanding the cultural significance of that not understanding the power of demons that lie behind that, and we mock it. 
Meanwhile, we are guilty of idolatry to a huge extent in issues that we don't think are idols at all. Let us examine our hearts and understand this, that idolatry is when anything or anyone has the place of God in our lives. What would you do? What extent would you go to if you did not have that which you worshipped? What would you do to preserve it? If you were going to lose all your worldly possessions, what would you do? If you worship them, you would sin to keep them. What would you do to keep your authority and power within your relationship structure if it's about to be taken from you? You would sin to keep it. Because idolatry demands sin rendered to the idol. God demands righteousness. It's conceptually important to understand the difference between the two. It goes to the very root of what we are as believers. And so in these issues, you don't start at the symptoms. You don't start at at the end. You don't start at the outcomes. You start at the core of the thing, which is the heart. You lay a foundation. You start off in the right trajectory, and you'll end up in the right place. Idolatry dishonors God. Idolatry destroys the people we love most all around us. Because when we worship them, for example, even within a marriage, you might have used that terminology, and maybe you don't. I don't know how you speak to each other here. I suspect it's in more affectionate terms than we do in Scotland. We tend to be a bit kind of standoffish. And um, just by way of anecdote, whenever I started coming over to the States um, to, to, to teach, I went over to the West Coast to a place called Arlington that some of you might know. And it must be the hugging capital of assembly life. They would just about hug the door. You know, the, if it moves, they hug it. And so I saw this as a deep problem and uh, notified them when I arrived that in Scotland, the handshake is the cultural equivalent of your hug, so back off. <laughs> and then was assaulted all the way down before I could get to the back by all these guys who thought it'd be great just to hug me incessantly. Um, so we have a cultural difference, so just remember that a handshake is really a hug. Anything more would be obviously inappropriate. Um, so idolatry is, is, is that you make your wife your idol, or vice versa, or more likely, it's probably more likely to be your children. And you expect from them what you, what you really should receive from God. And you give to them what you should be giving to God. You're, a, you're an idolater. There's no other way to, there's no other way, that's what it is. So, for example, take the marriage situation. They are a savior that cannot save you. You make them a mediator who cannot mediate. You deify your wife, you will destroy your relationship. Because your expectation is 
that you are seeking from her joy, value, meaning, purpose, encouragement, significance, all of which, by the way, is God's to give within the relationship. But if your expectation is that your spouse, and I say vice versa, your spouse is going to be the fountainhead of your significance, then what you will do is what all idolaters do is that you idolize someone until they don't perform and then you destroy them. You demonize them. So that, for example, if you idolize your race, then you demonize other races. That's the root of racism. If you idolize your gender, you will demonize the only other gender that exists, by the way, you will demonize the other gender. That has been the problem of female oppression throughout history. If you idolize your assembly, you will demonize other ones. It is inevitable because under this um, ideology of idolatry, then anything that threatens your idol is demonized. And you're hostile toward it because sin is the result of a worship disorder. What is the answer to idolatry? And after this, we'll break. The answer to idolatry is singular. It is repentance. And so there is no other answer. You cannot change your idol. You need to repent of idolizing it. Which is not to change the object of your idolatry, but to turn your back upon that idolatry and put that, whatever it is, in its correct place in your life. John Owen, from his book, The Mortification of Sin, and if you're brave enough and have enough energy, you can read that. He said that the choicest believers who are assuredly freed from the condemning power of sin ought yet to make it their business all their days to mortify the indwelling power of sin. He challenges this and says, do you mortify, put to death? Do you make it your daily work? Be at it always while you live. Cease not a day from this work. And here's his famous quote, be killing sin or it will be killing you. You're being dead with Christ virtually. You're being quickened with him will not excuse you from this work. Repent from idolatry and turn toward God. You have worshipped your way away from God. You need to worship your way back to Him. Display sinful affections with deeper, greater affections for God. Deliver us, O God, this is a prayer, from familiar sin, from what we have legitimized as sin, from idols which we do not recognize, from the idols of our past. Help us grind them to the dust like the golden calf at Sinai. And then we will be able 
inasmuch as the Spirit of God empowers us and enables us to love the Lord our God with all our heart and soul and mind and strength. That is the chiefest commandment of Scripture. Let's just have a word of prayer and then we're going to sing a hymn to let you stretch your legs. They used to say in Scotland that uh, there's an old brother who said that he'd been asked for a whole generation to stand up and stretch his legs and he hadn't grown an inch. So you can stretch your legs shortly um, and we'll sing a hymn and then we'll move on to another little section um, which will take us up to around about 12 o'clock. So let's just commit this to the Lord in prayer and then we'll sing.